Well, Happy New Year and good morning. My name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to preach on the passage that Wayne just read for us and Diana so beautifully, his, his wife so beautifully illustrated in the children's sermon. Let me pray, though, as we look at this, uh, this so essential passage to understanding God's Word. God, I pray that as we come to this, uh, this text, this story of two people on a road lost and confused, that first of all we would see ourselves in their situation But more than that, that we would see you, that we would feel the light that you bring, the hope and the joy that you bring to these two lost travelers. In this new year, in 2024, would you speak to us, for we are listening. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Several years ago, I received an email, and uh, I'm going to give you the gist of it. It's mo- mostly a quote here in just a second. And especially if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're especially if you follow Jesus, I wonder if this email resonates with you, especially when it comes to understanding the Bible. I would appreciate, the writer to me says, some sort of tutorial about reading the Bible. What should I be looking for? What should I be thinking of? How does it relate to me? I often find myself treating the Bible like a novel. That's dangerous, I know, because I get to check off that I read my Bible without actually retaining or learning anything. But if we have this gold mine of information on our hands, it's the foundation of our faith. But now what? Now, I wonder if you've ever felt like that in reading or studying the Bible. Maybe you've heard a sermon uh, and you've liked it, and you've thought, that certainly happened to me. I'm a preacher, and this certainly happens to me. I hear a sermon, and I think, that is so good. That was on fire. How on earth did they get that from that text? I mean, how did they, how did they understand it like that? They're right, but I didn't see it if I would have just read it myself. Well, today is the intro sermon to a new sermon series that we're very excited about. We're driving this through all levels of our church. Uh, because in the next eight weeks, we're going, as Diana just beautifully illustrated, we're going to go through the whole Bible in eight weeks. Good luck to us, right? Uh, the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. We're calling the series God's Big Picture. And our goal, our first goal is to help us to understand uh, the Bible, how it all ties together. And more importantly, more important than understanding is to help us live it out, to be changed by what the Bible teaches But let's be honest, the Bible is a tough book to get your mind around. It's comprised of 66 different books, as Diana just said, 27 in the New Testament, uh, uh, 39 in the Old Testament. It's written in three different languages, not English. Uh, It's written over the course of roughly 1,500 years, over 1,500 years, by multiple authors, dozens of authors, in numerous genres, you've got everything from Proverbs to poetry to narrative to gospels to letters. You've got all these different genres. And they're also written for people in very different circumstances from one another and from us. But the main point we're going to make in all these eight weeks is that despite all the complexity, despite all of the diversity, it is one story. It is God's story of redemption. Now, the story that Wayne just read for us of these two people on the road, circumstances in their life have left them despondent. They have left them despondent on this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in many ways, they are the perfect intro, not just to this sermon, but to this series, because they are confused by the Bible. 
These two people on the road, they can't make sense. They know that they are faithful Jews. They know the scriptures. And yet it does not square with their experience. They don't understand how the Bible relates to the experience that they are having, their circumstances. It really is an amazing story that we have here. Uh, One New Testament scholar says this, If the prodigal son is the best story Jesus ever told, this story, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, is the finest story that the gospel writer Luke ever told. And the reason it's such a great story, among others, is that the way Luke frames this story, it's like we're entering into this plot, this narrative, and we were able to enter in to this story in a way that we can keep entering in again and again and again. This story never grows old if you let it. And so this morning, I don't have so much as an outline. Uh, I like having outlines to help you kind of remember what I'm saying. But this is a little bit of an outline, but it's more like a three-act play. Act one, spiritual blindness. Act two, seeing the light. Act three, and briefly, sharing the story. But first, spiritual blindness. Look with me at the text if you have it in front of you. I always encourage you to have it in front of you. Where we are in the grand story of redemption is it is Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that Jesus is raised from the dead. In the uh, story immediately preceding, it says that Peter had just run to Jesus' tomb and it is empty. In verse 13, the verse first that we read, it says, and it was the very same day. Because so this is Resurrection Sunday. Now, all of Jesus' followers, they are astir. They are concerned. Jesus has died, and, but the tomb is empty. And so you have these two followers, one named Cleopas and the other, we don't know. It might be his wife, Mary. It might be a male friend or disciple. We don't know. They are walking to a village called Emmaus that is seven miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? And it's Resurrection Sunday. They've heard the reports that Jesus is not, they've nobody seen Jesus. The tomb is empty, but Jesus is dead. They saw him die on the cross. And as they're walking along the road, they're joined by a stranger, a stranger on the road who unrecognized to them is Jesus. And as Jesus comes along them, I would love to have been in this moment, uh, he says, well, what are, you, what are you guys talking about? This is martial language. What are you talking about? And they're like, have you not heard what just been happening last, like, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours in Jerusalem? And Jesus plays dumb. No, what happened? <laughs> uh, and then they recount the story. And they say how there's this man named Jesus of Nazareth who was mighty in word and in deed. He was delivered up by the religious authorities to be killed, and they killed him. We thought he would redeem Israel. And now some of our friends have gone to the tomb where he was buried, and they say that the tomb is empty and that they saw angels, but no one has seen Jesus, they said to Jesus' face. They are distraught. They are crushed. They thought that Jesus was going to save him, and now he's dead and the tomb is empty. They, just, they, are just convol- they do not know what is happening. The circumstances in their life do not make sense. And for just a moment... I want to put, your, put, you, put, put yourself in their shoes for just a moment because we've all been there. Maybe you were there this very morning where the circumstances of your life leave you feeling like the promises of God are void, where life makes no sense. It just doesn't make sense, and you are despondent. You're asking, what is going on? I cannot see God, and I cannot see how God is in my life. All I can see are the circumstances Of my life. In the case of these two, they are so overcome with what has happened to them, their circumstances, they're so overcome that they literally cannot see Jesus in front of them, like right there, he's right here, he's this close to them, and they cannot recognize him. 
Why? Why are they so blind spiritually? Why are we? Now, this is something very interesting in all of the New Testament resurrection accounts when we consider why it is they couldn't see him, is that Jesus is at first, in the resurrection accounts, he appears to be unrecognizable or not easy to recognize. Mary does not recognize him. The fishermen in John 21 don't initially recognize him. And here, these two disciples do not recognize him. There was something different but ordinary about his resurrection body. But then verse 16 actually does say in the case of these two, their eyes were kept from seeing him. And N.T. Wright suggests that their failure to see him physically with their eyes, their failure to see him physically is tied to their inability to see how the events of those days were in fact God's redemption, specifically the crucifixion. They couldn't see how crucifixion could be good news. More on that in a second. But I contend that the main two problems that are leading to their spiritual blindness, their inability to see Jesus, are, we, can both, we see both problems in verse 20 and 21. Look with me at the end of verse 20 and 21. It says this. They says the religious authorities condemned him to death, Jesus, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The first thing they do not see, these disciples, and that we often don't see, is the depth of the problem. Another way of saying this is they don't understand the word redeem. They don't understand the word redeem. Now, to understand the New Testament, you have to understand that the Jewish people were an occupied people. They had been colonized by the Romans who ran everything. In fact, when the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus, they can't. They have to go through the Romans. And so these two, like almost all the Jews of their generation, thought that the way that redemption was going to come, and for followers of Jesus, that Jesus would bring redemption, was by throwing off the yoke of Roman domination and uniting all of the Jews. That was what redemption was going to look like. It was going to be a political deliverance. And because they thought that, because they thought that Jesus was going to redeem them from their political circumstance, the crucifixion was devastating. Because this is the guy they looked to to be their general, their Messiah, their king, and now he is dead. But friends, a change in political circumstances is not redemption. A change in political circumstances is just a change in circumstances. Now, I think we in 2024 can empathize, right? We can empathize with wanting God to change our circumstances. There's everything on the personal level. But there's also kind of the, the geopolitical level. I mean, you know, I said to somebody recently, I said, you know, 2024 is going to be a wild year. And they're like, no, duh. <laughs> you know, really? You know, two wars, you know, fires, earthquakes, the threat of Taiwan, a presidential election in America that's very going to be, going to be very contested. I mean, there's some circumstances, right? We got, a, we got a kind of a, you know, we got the, all the ingredients for some, a crazy year, right? I, I told this person, like, yeah, <laughs> you heard it here first, right? Um, but here's the deal. Imagine this. This is a pleasant thought. Imagine if everything goes smoothly in 2024, right? All the things, all the things that I just said, they don't get better. They get, they don't get worse. They get better. Imagine 2024 is the year that the whole planet, every person on the planet is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. You know what problem we'd still have? Our own hearts. Our own hearts. You see, the problem Jesus came to solve is not our circumstances. 
He came to solve something deeper. He came to change and redeem our disordered and unruly hearts. The first thing they didn't see is the depth of the problem. And because they don't see the depth of the problem, they also don't see, secondly, the nature of the solution. You see, they thought that the Messiah was coming to redeem God's people from suffering. But in fact, the Messiah has come to redeem his people through suffering. Not from suffering, through suffering. Look again with me at verses 20 and 21. And I want you to see how very close Cleopas has to getting it exactly right. He says, he was condemned to death and crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. If you just twist that a little bit and take out the but, you actually have what we believe today, the Orthodox Confession of Faith. He was condemned to death and crucified, and he has redeemed God's people. It's the suffering of Jesus that bothers Cleopas. But suffering is how Jesus redeems. The Christian message is that redemption comes not from suffering, but through suffering. Jesus suffered, and so shall we. As Jeb Ralston said on the stage just a few weeks ago when quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a person, when Christ comes, calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it's so easy to be blind to this because we experience suffering and we cry out, where's the redemption? Where is God? Because we think that when suffering comes, that God has abandoned us or forgotten us. But we forget at least three things. First, that Jesus experienced suffering. We secondly forget that Jesus predicted that we would suffer. And then we forget along with these two that Jesus is standing in the road with us in our suffering and despondency. Now I just referred to Jeb Ralston who shared his story. But we had a great slate of Advent stories this year in our church. If you are new with us or have never been with us, every Sunday of December, we have someone from our church tell a story of how God has shown up in their lives. I do believe it might be, along with Rock the Block, our best tradition uh, as a church. And this year, the stories were unusually powerful. We heard stories of loss, of trauma. We heard stories of loneliness and disappointment which is to say we heard stories of suffering. But friends, they were not stories of depression, were they? They were stories of joy and life. They were stories of God's grace and of his presence because the tellers of those stories, those four individuals, and the telling of their stories, they had learned to see redemption in the midst of the very real suffering of their life. What a thing I loved about all four stories is that none of them tied the stories up with a nice little, little bow, you know, and like made it nice and neat. It was messy because God shows up in suffering. Suffering is how Jesus redeemed the world, and so often it is how he redeems and calls us to himself. Suffering is often how he reweaves our lives, remakes us. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes, and I'm going to quote from, from John Newton. 
Uh, John Newton would have been a great like theme for this because his you know his great amazing grace song I once was blind but now I see. But this is a different hymn that John Newton wrote. He said this: I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of God's salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Who's prayed that prayer? I want to grow. But then he goes on, I hope that in some favored hour that God would answer my request. And by love's constraining power, he'd subdue my sins. He'd give me rest. But instead of this, God made me feel the evils of my heart. He let the angry powers of hell assault me in every part. Why is this, I trembling cried, will you pursue me to death? And the Lord answered, this is the way I answer prayers for grace and faith. Because these trials I employ from self and pride to set you free. To break the schemes of earthly joy that you would find your all in me. But the good news here, friends, is that God does not leave these two disciples. And he does not leave you and me in our despondence, in our spiritual blindness. Jesus comes to them in this story and he shines the bright shining light of himself. And he does it in two different ways. The first thing Jesus does is he doesn't just open the Bible and teach them from the Bible. Very important to see this. He doesn't just do that. He opens the Bible to them and shows them how the whole Bible is about him. Okay, look with me, verse 25. And Jesus said to them, after they've told their story of despondence, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken... Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Now this reference to Moses and the prophets is a reference to all of the Jewish scriptures, all 39 books of what the Christians call the Old Testament. But a better translation of this last verse might be every part of the scriptures, Jesus is saying, is about me. Every part of the scriptures is about me. This was the world's greatest Bible story. When was the greatest Bible story ever taught? Right here. Jesus walking down the road telling these two people who know the scriptures intellectually, telling them that all of the Bible is about him. I would pay enormous sons of money to have been in this Bible study. We know it was good. Verse 32 says their hearts burned within them. But friends, this is the key. It is essential to everything we're going to say over the next eight weeks. In fact, it's a key to everything that you do in reading your Bible or in any Bible study you're in. Because you need to understand there is a moralistic way to read the Bible. And there is a gospel-centered way to read the Bible. There's a moralistic way and there's a gospel-centered way to read the Bible. Now, here's how the moralistic uh, person reads, the moralistic understanding of the Bible is this. You think, I'm going to be faithful, you know, kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. Or I'm going to be willing to give all of my life and really lay down like Abraham did. Or I'm going to be like David slaying Goliath. And if you read the uh, the Bible like that as kind of morals to be followed, it initially is very inspirational. I mean, there's some inspiring stories in the scriptures, inspiring Man, yeah, I'm going to be faithful and strong like these brothers and sisters. But then life happens and you fall short. You don't stand up your faith when somebody challenges it. Doubts overwhelm you. Suffering drowns you. 
And then that moralistic reading of the Bible, it starts to weigh you down. It starts to swallow you. A moralistic reading of the Bible destroys people. Actually, as a pastor, a moralistic reading of the Bible, it actually makes me angry because I see how it hurts people. If you just read the Bible and say, I need to be like these people, it, it will end up killing you. It will suck the joy out of your life. But a gospel-centered reading of the Bible, it is so life-giving. When you see how Jesus is the key to every story, that his foot fingerprints are on every paragraph, that every story whispers his name, that you can look for him on every single sentence of the Bible, it is so life-giving. Let's take Daniel and the lion's den. Everybody knows, they've heard about Daniel and the lion's den. When you read the story of Daniel and the lion's den, not moralistically, but with a gospel centrality, you don't just see Daniel being faithful in the face of persecution. You see that, but you see something greater. You see the greater Daniel. You see Jesus who was faithful for all his life, who didn't avoid the jaws of death, but in fact was consumed by the jaws of death, crushed by the lions as it were only to be raised to God's right hand. The story of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is telling these two disciples on the road, the whole Bible is about me. And if you get anything out of anything I say today or the next day, we get this. Jesus is the key. He is, and the, the Old Testament is the preparation for Jesus. Right? The Gospels are the proclamation of Jesus. The letters of Paul, Peter, and John, those are, uh, that's, those are the proclamation of Jesus. Revelation is the presentation of Jesus' second coming. You see, if you go back all through Scripture, as Diana did a moment ago, Jesus is the promised one who in Genesis 3 will crush the head of the Satan. He is the ark of salvation in whom we find refuge. He is the promised offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is the greater Moses delivering people from bondage and slavery. He is the sacrificial lamb given for our sins. He is David's greater son, ruling and reigning over us. He has the spirit of Elijah. He is our prophet, and he is our great high priest who has made atonement for us and ever lives to pray and intercede for us. Jesus is the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is Jesus. And to read the Bible aright, you must see that everything points to and finds its consummation in him. And if you read the Bible with this view, it will not only make sense, it will not crush you, but it will give you joy and life. So the one thing that you need to be asking every time you open your Bible, whether it's by yourself, whether it's in this room with Nick or me preaching, or whether it's in a Bible study, wherever it is and you open your Bible, the one question you need to be asking above all others is how is Jesus in this passage? How is Jesus here? Every time. Who, what, where, when, all those questions are important. But the most important question is how do I see Jesus in this passage? But here's the crazy thing to me about this story, which is so brilliant about Jesus. Because even after all that, the world's greatest Bible study, and it literally says their hearts are on fire. They have such an understanding. But they still don't see Jesus, do they? 
They still don't see him. Right there, the one giving the Bible saying they can't see him. He's saying, it's all about me. It's all about this guy named Jesus. And they don't see it. Verse 20, they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if you're going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's towards evening. The day is far spent. So he went on to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. And he gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. You see, their hearts caught fire in showing how all the Bible pointed to Jesus. But their eyes were not opened until he broke the bread. Their eyes were not opened until he broke the bread. Verse 30, it says that Jesus took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. And he gave the bread. Now, those four verbs are almost the exact same verbs that Jesus had used for two chapters ago in Luke 22 when he had instituted the Lord's Supper. You see, friends, Jesus is revealed in the breaking of the bread. This, the Lord's table, is the chief, along with baptism, symbolic action of God's people. And there's so many reasons why. Let me give you a few. The Lord's Supper, first of all, it's physical. Literally, all five of our senses are engaged. Sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. All five of our senses are engaged in the Lord's Supper. But it's much more than that. It's theological. Because this meal that we'll come to in just a moment, it tells the story of redemption. I want you to think about what is the first meal in the Bible? What is the first meal in the Bible? It's Genesis chapter 3. When it says of Eve, she took of its fruit from the tree of knowledge, and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. The first meal is the moment it all went bad. As Tom Wright said, death itself is traced to that moment, to that meal. The whole creation was subject to decay, futility, and sorrow. And here we are in the first meal of the new creation. He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it, and their eyes are opened. The curse is broken, death and sin are defeated. God's new creation brimming with life into a world of decay and sorrow. Because, friends, this meal tells the story of the good news for us. This is my body, Jesus says. This is my body. And it's given for you. Jesus is revealed in the breaking of the bread. This, friends, is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week after the sermon significantly. These two are tied together. This is why it's great to listen to preachers and and watch sermons online. I do this myself. But it is important to be physically present in a church for the Lord's Supper. And I'll just say this. If you don't get it, your faith will struggle. Because there's something about the combination of word and sacrament, Bible and supper, intellect and emotion, head and heart. They come together in a worship service. They are the vital ingredients that God has given us to see, know, and experience God. You see, Luke has told this story in such a way that we can live into it every week. Where we come before God's word and God's word is presented to us and broken, exposited for us. And our hearts begin to burn with fresh truths from old stories. 
Our hearts are set on fire. And then we're invited to the table where Jesus himself is the host. And he offers himself. And as the bread is broken and the wine is poured out, we can see Jesus by faith. We see Jesus by faith. Now, real briefly, the story is not over. Sometimes sermons seem to stop here, but the sermon is not over. Their blindness has been healed. They now see. But they start to go out and they start to tell the story. The third act here is they go out and they retell and they share this story. I'm not going to read the verses, but what happens is Jesus vanishes from their sight. They lay their bread down. They don't finish their dinner. They hustle back. They run back to Jerusalem. They've got to tell the story. Verse 35, I will read. Then they told them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, I want you to think about that road they were on. On the way there, they were in total despondence. But something has happened. They have seen Jesus, and they are coming back, and they experience that road in a totally different way, despite the fact that Jesus is not physically present with them anymore. The road had been a road of despondence. Now it is a road of joy and hope because they have seen Jesus. And my question to you in closing this morning, where on the road are you? Where on the road are you? Are you lost in despondence, looking at the circumstances of your life, not saying that Jesus is right there with you? in the suffering, in the hurt, there to bring you joy and hope. Because as we see his light, we want to tell others, and more importantly, we just want to live the story of hope, of life, of love, of new creation that he has brought to his people. I love this story. It is such a beautiful story. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your servant, Luke, who wanted to preserve this story for us. He knew, he knew that all of us could identify with those two disciples on that road, lost, confused, overcome by circumstances. And like those two disciples, God, I pray that you would show up in the person of your son. Show us yourself that we might know joy, hope, life, and love. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.